Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Regeneration Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, as always, I'm here with my friend Isaac. What's yes, up, man? Sir. Not much. Getting ready for Kurt. Yes. Kurt. Kurt Willems. My dear old friend, Kurt. Kurt is um, the founding pastor of Pangea Church in Seattle. He is a writer, a blogger, a podcaster. Uh, there's a good chance you know him from a million different things that he puts out there tons as, of stuff as resources which is like a beautiful thing for your it. emails are longer and more detailed than the greatest blog i've ever wrote <laughs> hey, nice true. nice hey that's how, awesome how you doing kurt dude i'm doing good good to be with you guys yeah, yeah. this is a, a real joy i mean i i think jay we go back we you know, go way a while, back man and uh yeah it's good to be able to catch up in this format but uh yeah i'm uh, happy to meet isaac and process right yeah, wrestle yeah. and all that good stuff so yeah yeah before we get into the details of it i mean we're going to talk about uh, a couple of really specific ideas on this episode but first um for those maybe who don't know the details of your journey it's a fascinating one and like you said we go way back actually so i was able to see from afar some of your journey um, go back and tell people, I mean, right now you do all of this stuff and you're in uh, this incredible city, Seattle, um, but tell us how you got there and not just Seattle and Pangea Church, but everything you do to um, create robust conversations around really tough theological ideas. How, how did you get to where you are? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a cool question. And uh, I want to say thanks to you guys. This is fun to be able to process out loud and it uh, was a journey, right? Like a real solid journey. I, I started out conservative, evangelical Christianity. That's just my my story. Uh, in a lot of ways, I I still feel like those are my people. It's uh, I was reared in youth group culture. I was reared in, uh, yeah, Christian high school. I did all of that stuff. And it was during Christian high school, having come out of a pretty not awesome childhood and stuff. I had this really dynamic call to ministry and that set forward a, a trajectory, you know, and I uh, spent time kind of uh, discerning future steps and ended up as an intern for a season and hanging out with our mutual buddy, Forrest Jenin, yeah. uh, actually twice in my ministry journey because, uh, yeah, we tend to work all right together. And so, um, but what I think when it comes to resourcing, I, I think it was definitely my early 20s where questions I'd never asked were being asked by people in ways that captivated me. You know, I was reading different authors, um, you know, even like your buddy Dan, like early on his book, The Emerging Church, and yeah, sure. some of the other things that came out of that. Uh, and eventually what really was a catalytic experience was discovering N.T. Wright's work. And when I discovered N.T. Wright's work, it was like, whoa, there's something more about the Bible than I've understood. But when I hear this guy talk, it doesn't sound wrong. It doesn't sound heretical. It sounds like there's just depth to be discovered. And so, um, as I learned that venue, I mean, I used to drive my car and I would burn CDs. Remember when we used to burn CDs? Maybe oh, you guys yeah. still do that. You're probably cooler <laughs> than me. I don't burn CDs anymore, but no. like, like I would burn just any talk that was given for free at the NT Wright page or whatever yeah. back in the day. And I would listen to them over and over again and just absorb it like through osmosis then, you know, and, and that was uh, the start of this real curiosity 
Uh, I went to a small little Bible college because I wanted a degree so I could be a youth pastor, kind of BS my way through it for the most part. And it wasn't until I was in seminary where it was like a light bulb went on that studying this stuff was uh, critical to my own spiritual journey, but also a gift that if I could lean into it, could be helpful for the church, you know? And so, uh, people have often pushed back in, in different contexts, not so much anymore, but like, so are you going to be a pastor or a theologian? Because you can't be both. Or um, saying things like, why does this nuanced issue matter? And everything that I've actually wrestled with for the most part has been driven by, like, if we take this idea and step a few paces backwards, it has real ramifications for how we live out the gospel as a community. It's not just oh, whatever, you know, like a lot of theological issues should be like, yeah, there, there are spaces for that. And so, I've always had this drive towards like mission, like theology as mission and theology as gift for community. Um, and so, that's really uh, what drives me. And I think during that process, um, you know, I went to a couple of different churches where I was working. Some were healthier than others and uh, had some challenges along the way. But what I continue to discover is I I couldn't get past the curiosity that God put within my soul, I believe. Yeah. And uh, it's that curiosity that drives me. I'm not analytical by nature. I'm a ENFP. I'm a seven. I, I see patterns and I, I'm driven by intuition when I study. I'm not driven by mathematical logic. I just kind of feel my way to things. And uh, so, in a lot of ways, I, I feel like I'm the least unlikely guy to be doing what I do, but it's, uh, it's been a real joy. And, uh, you know, I started a blog at one point, and from that blog eventually emerged a, a, another blog. And one time, I thought to myself, I should say stuff in audio format because that's easier than typing. <laughs> and I just like kind of ran with it. And so I started the Paul cast. I was studying at the University of Washington. I was studying uh, Paul and classics. I uh, just finished that in June and uh, was like, I, I, have, I have things I can regurgitate here. And uh, then I, yeah, I stepped into Rapture Drill uh, this last spring as another project. And so, yeah, it's all kind of comes together. And I feel like my resources and writing and podcasting complements my ministry, and it definitely cuts down sermon prep time, right? Because they they flow together, and uh, so so yeah, that's kind of like a super broad bird's eye view of the journey of how I sort of moved into this, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to keep leaning into it with more uh, intentionality, I guess, in this season too. Yeah, I love what you said about theology as mission. Yeah, um, it sort of drills down on what we're trying to do here at the Regeneration right. Project and on the podcast and the events that we do. Uh, we say it all the time, but um, man, theology alone—if it's not for something, what is it? You know, it's just these ideas sort of rumbling around in our heads, and we can be really smart and sort of hold that, you know, as a trump card over people. But 
Um, I love I love that idea, and I've seen that in your life and in your ministry theology for the sake of mission. Right? We yeah the, the yeah. stuff we're talking about, even though maybe sometimes on the surface feels like man, this is like really nuts and bolts. Does it really matter that much? Yeah, it matters when it's connected to the mission. That are you know what's the sort of story we're telling about yeah. God, and what does that story tell us about our own stories and and what God's up to in our lives and in the world. So the uh, first time. I listened to you, Kurt. It was pretty random. Uh, I think it came up on a suggestion from podcast or something like that, and uh, it was on the Paulcast. And you you had some ear problem that you had surgery on. Oh yeah, I've had a couple of those. Yeah, so yeah. It was, it was like yeah. you're coming back. You're like, hey, I've been gone for a bit. I have this ear problem, uh, but I wanted to uh, briefly kind of go off the the cuff and talk about. Um, Paul in relationship to empire and the imperial cult, if there's um, kind of imperial rhetoric in the letters of Paul. And I didn't know anything about you. And I just go, this this guy's not going to get it right. He, it's the most <laughs> nuanced, complicated. You lean too far this way, you're wrong. You lean too far this way. If you start seeing it everywhere in the text and it's not there, then yeah. you pretend it's not. It's like, this guy's not going to get He's coming back from injury. And in 15 minutes, I was like, Dude, that pretty much sums up the issues pretty, pretty, pretty darn well, man. He 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 did it. So uh, I was in. Wow, wow I was that's impressed. An yeah. Honor. Yeah, yeah, no, I was really, wow. I was, I was, because I was going in there. Such, you know, I, you described yourself. I'm like, I'm the critical hater. So I'm just going. To, come on, <laughs> this guy going to try to do what it's taken N.T. Wright, Scott McKnight, and others, you know, 30 years of scholarship to summarize this guy. And I was like, oh man, I think he just did a good 15 minute summary that that about sums it up so good wow. job man wow yeah 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 well that's uh yeah thanks. it was solid dude. it was solid it was doing like what i do <laughs> it was like it was like a bible court like i was like that could replace so much it was just so succinct you had an ability to kind of filter it down to the basic elements for everyone to kind of grapple with and not um go too far in either direction which is kind of scholarship you know has, has done that f- back and forth so and now you're going to do it for Rev- the entire book of revelation the apocalypse and eschatology <laughs> yeah. on the regeneration project that's done. right that's right yes yeah. yes that's the goal i mean that is something that you're you're so great at at the end of the podcast we'll we'll give people some resources where they can find some of your work but um you're so great at uh presenting things that are really difficult in concise, clear, yet compelling ways that are also quite balanced and gives us this sort of um, healthy survey of the options, essentially. And you've done that over the years for a number of topics, and we can talk about, I mean, we've got to have you back on because there's a million things we could talk to you about. But today, we want to pick your brain a little bit about something that is, um, it seems to be such a common, high-felt need uh, when it comes to people, not just young people, but all people who engage the scriptures. So you say anything in Christian circles about the book of Revelation, and always there is that we protect our unease with Revelation with some humor. You know, somebody will just yep. make a joke about it, and it's like, okay, and then you just move on because mm-hmm. you don't want to get to it. So recently you did an entire series on your podcast called Rapture Drill, where the whole thing was about this. It was about the book of Revelation in particular, um, the end times, uh, and then, of course, you get into all the different nuanced ideas there. Um, Before we get into the details of it, Kurt, we just want to ask, what were you seeing and are you seeing in the church at large and maybe even in your own context as a church leader that made you feel like, I got to do this, I've got to dedicate episode after episode to just talking about this one thing? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question. I think... 
I think one of the things that uh, is part of my journey is deconstructing revelation actually helped me learn to ask questions about all of the scriptures, right? And so here I am, 20 years old, and N.T. Wright, first time I'm ever exposed to him, is saying things like, the hope of the Christian life is new creation. It's renewed creation, right? It's it's the restoration of all things. And my mind is kind of blown because I thought it was going to heaven when I die. And, and starting from that space meant uh, I had to do some homework. And do you guys remember a show called The Bible Answer Man by chance? Oh, dude. Hey, Canada. Any of you? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Uh, you know, good old Hank, right? And during this time, uh, I'm I'm driving once a week. I would drive truck. That, this is a random side note, but I would drive truck for my grandparents who, until a month ago, owned a broom factory and distribution center. They manufacture brooms and they supply grocery stores, right? And so once a week during the season of college, I would drive a truck up north from you know. Dinuba, California, near Fresno, uh, all the way up to Lodi and back. And Hank Hanegraaff would be on. And I would listen. And during the season, he kept saying things like, we've read the book of Revelation wrong, and we need a, a fresh perspective on what it's doing. And for him, that meant uh, the book was actually written a lot earlier, maybe somewhere around 70 or right before 70. And we could talk about those kinds of issues. And, uh, you know, for a season, I've tracked with him perfectly. And I still think that view called partial preterism is still a great alternative to what I grew up with. Because most Christians that I knew believed that at any moment, Jesus would come back, suck out of the earth a bunch of people, right? They'll, you know, go fly away, oh glory. Mm -hmm. And this world was doomed for chaos, that God was going to let it run amok for seven years, come back, judge you know, uh, do all that stuff. And then this thing would be blown to smithereens and a brand new thing would be built and uh, that would be heaven forever, right? And N.T. Wright challenged that assumption on a meta level. And during that season, Hank Hanegraaff was giving me new thoughts about what if this is directed at people it was written to, you know? Hmm. And, and the reason I think this is such an important issue now is I think there's a lot less people who like live and die on the hill of end times theology. You know, I think that was very 90s and early 2000s. I think most people are kind of like you were saying, like, it doesn't really matter. Let's crack a joke, pan millennialism, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, what was interesting, uh, Hank, Hank Hanegraaff, I remember he had a term I, I, that I really liked. He called it, you remember this? It was a uh, newspaper theology. And uh, when you talk about the, he goes, when it comes to end times, Christians believe in newspaper theology. And essentially what he was communicating was that uh, our view of the end times is based upon like speculation, extremism, um, stuff that sounds worthy of a newspaper headline, but not necessarily grounded in the text. And what he was doing, what was so good was, and even a lot of the stuff N.T. Wright was doing was they weren't necessarily coming up to any radically new conclusions. It was just the path you took there was the same path that scripture took. N.T. Wright uses mm-hmm. that metaphor a lot. He's like, look, right. I get to I get to the same place the average Protestant gets to. I'm just taking a different path to, to, to get there. And he, of course, emphasized the fact, though, that unfortunately modern Christians were you know, view in heaven as the disembodied, bodiless kind of existence where you're just yeah. fl- going away in the clouds rather than the Jewish hope of 
new creation. Um, yeah. And Hanegraaff was good because on a kind of hermeneutic level, what we call, you know, bi- crazy biblical term for some of you, just biblical interpretation, he he was saying, look, it Revelation has a lot to do about the end of the world and the end times and all that stuff, but it has a lot to do with what those Christians were wrestling with in right. that time, and hence the term partial preterism. I kind of wanted to define that for our audience. Um, like a full-blown preterism, would you would say, the book of Revelation, it's, it's all done, it's all in the past. Don't, I'm, I'm simplifying and creating that a character. It makes sense, yeah, um, yeah. But the partial preterist view would say, Look, there's there's stuff there directly for those seven churches at the beginning of Revelation. There's stuff for for those Christians that were suffering under under these conditions, but it also has the hope for for all humanity in that. And so it's important to define that because oftentimes lately I've seen kind of partial preterism get viewed as just they just lump it in with the, the preterist view completely and act like it has nothing sure, to say. Sure. And one other one other note too for our audience on all of these issues, we always want to be sensitive. We know there's people from different traditions and backgrounds. Yeah. There's gonna be people listening that believe in a rapture, don't believe in a rapture, don't even know what a rapture is. Millennial, pan millennial, all millennial. Look, we the we agree to disagree on a lot of these issues, but the point is that they matter, and so we should mm-hmm. be discussing them. And so, yeah, absolutely. And and just to interject, the reason, and I'm not like mad at people who say this, <laughs> but the reason I just think the pan millennial like dismissal is a dismissal, is it really. You know, on the one hand, is like we can be Christians together. It really doesn't matter if you. I totally affirm that impulse. I. I have so many friends and family that uh, read the Bible a lot different than me, but are passionate about the Lord. You know, so I, I have no problem with that part of this idea. But it also feels like a dismissal of one of the most, like, like powerful. I would say powerful books in the entire Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we dismiss that out of hand as too complex, when the, I think there are tools for jumping into it, uh, that that's what really I'm just like. Oh, but there's so much more here, you know. Yeah, when God uh, wanted to close the canon, He put forth revelation. I mean, that's indeed. that's that's important. It's like this is yeah. this is yeah. the climax of the Christian story in a very that's NT right. right way, from creation to new creation. Revelation is the climax of the story. Before we get into some of the really interesting, fascinating ideas that you've proposed and and put out there for those, and Isaac did a little bit of this, for those who are listening, because we do have a lot of people who listen, who are just beginning to scratch the surface, right? And, you know, the majority of our folks didn't go to seminary and get their MDiv and they didn't take Greek and any of that. So maybe define some of the terms for us. So we have a, a, a base foundation for understanding some of the language that is going to naturally come up as we as we discuss the end times and revelation. So what are we talking about when we've said it multiple times already? What are we talking about when we talk about millennialism? You know, because some people are like, isn't that a generation of young people born between nineteen ninety seven and two thousand what you know? It's like, well what are we talking about <laughs> biblically when we talk about millennialism? Yeah. And um yeah, let's start there. And, and as we go, uh, as as language comes up, we can sort of pause to to define stuff. So when we talk about millennialism, there's all kinds of views, right? And uh, millennials, of course, are like you said, different. I think I'm at the top of the millennial spectrum. I I still <laughs> like claim it, but hesitantly, I, you know, as I get yeah, more. That's gray right. In How, my old shit. You? How old I, are you? How old are you? 34. Okay, I'm 34. So, so we are we are technically millennials. Yeah, just on the yeah. technically. 
We're bilingual yeah, though. We could speak to the Gen Xers. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I like it. I like it. So, so I, uh, you know, when we talk about millennialism, we're really just talking about like one little bit of revelation towards the back end, right? Um, and and there's this this whole conversation around Jesus reigning for a thousand years, right? And Satan being locked up for a thousand years, and and there's there's quite a bit of uh, uh, systems that are built on what that is. So of course there's um, premillennialism, which is this idea that Jesus will return, and for most systems, uh, return, rapture the church, right, and. Uh, there's this tribulation, and then at the end of um, all of that comes the millennium, right? So it's a pre-millennial rapture, a pre-millennial tribulation. Um, then, of course, there's uh, post-millennialism, which sounds really good, but actually, in my opinion, reproduces empire. Post-millennialism is this idea that we're History is slowly moving towards a Christian utopia, and when it's ready, Jesus returns to like consummate that thing that mission has moved us towards. Uh, what that meant in the early 1900s, though, was it gave presidents great justification for going to places like the Philippines and calling them barbarians and conquering them. I mean, it's it's fascinating, right? Because. Uh, it also gave rise to the social gospel. Very fascinating as well. Uh, so, good fruit, bad fruit with postmillennialism. Good at home, I think it's sometimes. We got to help the poor. We got to do good. Bad when you export it because it looks a lot like colonialism most of the time, in our history at least. Uh, and then, of course, there's amillennialism, which is this idea that uh, this thousand years is a metaphorical way of talking about the age within which God is moving through the power of the Holy Spirit through the church until the return of Jesus. Um, and then there's kind of where I would land that millennialisms aren't really that big of a deal in Revelation. And actually, this concept isn't a big deal. And I get this from a guy named Richard Bauckham who simply says like the contrast of a thousand years is built into the text to justify the short period of suffering that the martyrs have had to go through. So like compared to the suffering you folks have endured, this reality of Jesus is like a thousand years. It's like big, it's like this kind of huge, right? And and uh, so, so I hesitate to even try and make a system out of that because I think there's a rhetorical uh, intent to that language, but those are basically the views, and uh, they have had huge ramifications in a, a lot of Christian circles throughout church history. Did you ever watch? There's a video. Um, does a, a pretty good summary. It's a debate that's actually hosted by a uh, John Piper called the Night of Eschatology. No, that it's pretty good. It's, it's three yeah. hours. It's John Piper who you wouldn't think first off would be a debate host. That's just like not yeah. his character. Uh, <laughs> right. He's hosting a debate and it's um, Sam Storms. Uh, I've heard that name. Sam Storms, yeah. a, a reformed guy arguing for amillennialism. I forget yes. the guy from Dallas arguing for um, premillennialism. Um, and then uh, Douglas Campbell doing the uh, post postmillennialist view. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's super good. It's three hours, and it's just these guys who that's their thing going at it. So just for our audience, 
Um, if you want like a three hour breakdown with guys kind of going at it for their different views, uh, it's called a night of eschatology, but night of eschatology, John Piper, and it'll come up three hours of just this, this stuff in super geeky fashion, but you get the kind of historic three historically kind of three major views kind of really articulated. And in my opinion, I thought Sam storms just came out clearly the victor. He was arguing basically for a that like the millennium is the rule and reign of Christ in the present age in the heavenly realms. Um, mm-hmm. But he argued his point really, really well. He's got a book called yeah. too called Kingdom Come um, yeah. that kind of maps it out too. Just resources for the listeners if you'd want to check into it. Kurt, um, you alluded to this just now, and I think it opens us up to a, a, a broader conversation now about the book of Revelation and then how that flows into our understanding of the end times. But you said, as you were talking about millennialism, you talked about language and you talked yeah. about, you know, you mentioned Bauckham and um, what he presents and others actually present about language and how language is so important. So there's a, um, you know, there's a whole other sort of idea that if you've been around church, uh, maybe you've heard, but this idea of apocalyptic literature and um, how linguistically sort of our detachment in the modern world, because that sort of literature is not prevalent today. Um, so get into Revelation as a whole now, and particularly through the lens of, of what you've already alluded to uh, regarding millennialism. Because, and I just want to bring this back to sort of the the felt need for so many of us listening, Um, I read Revelation. There's so many of us who are like, I read Revelation, and this was my experience growing up in kids' church and in youth group, Uh, and I read this language, this really incredibly colorful, descriptive, fantastic ecstatic sounding stuff that is often scary (laughs) and uh, just reads like a weird Christian horror film or something. Um, Yeah. And I grew up, I grew up looking every night for, for several years as a kid in elementary school, looking up at the moon to see if it was red or not. And, yeah. you know, it was like, oh, gosh, because that's when I'm yeah. going to know it's all coming to an end or whatever. So I just took yeah. it very literally. And I think so many people do, which is why we just prefer to ignore Revelation. So talk about that. Deconstruct some of that. And uh, what's a better way for us to read the book? I think I think you're bringing up some really important points. I think probably this is the foundation, right? We can we can get into the details about why different people have different sorts of uh, ways they move with this language. But I think language is really at uh, the essence, man. And 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 to get to your point, right? So many people have written me stories about what you just described. Childhood, I was worried that the rapture was going to happen, and I didn't. Some of them are like, I didn't know for sure that I was Christian enough to make it, uh, and and I was l- terrified. I mean, some kids just terrified over this. Yeah. And uh, you know, and 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 it's interesting as we we think about language. The language of rapture, for instance, isn't in there, and, and we could talk about that. But I think it's just fascinating to just sort of highlight some of these things. Um, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, though, that that is like foundational. Like if we if we don't read this as a genre, I don't know if that's a word. Can you say genre text? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
or engendered. Let's make yeah. up words um, because they seem to probably in Revelation. But anyway, you get the idea. Like uh, we have to read it as apocalyptic literature. And what's apocalyptic literature? Well, it's this very uh, – I say poetic loosely, so it's not technically poetry, but it's this saturated and poetic imagery sorts of literature that usually was resistance literature. Uh, for the Jewish people, you can go back to like Daniel, and Daniel and the parts that are really weird and scary, these are um, – early sort of examples of apocalyptic language and it will use cosmic imagery sometimes the stars are falling from the sky the heavens are shaking and all this stuff and it's not as though it seems that these authors actually think all of that stuff is happening or will happen in the future what they seem to be saying is something crazy cataclysmic is happening and will happen and when it happens ultimately we will be vindicated as a people. We will be rescued uh, from these empires, these oppressors. And so Daniel has these uh, beasts that come out of the water, you know, all this stuff. And um, Revelation has some of that as well. And you, you actually have other Jewish writers in the first century writing apocalypses that aren't Christian. Uh, Second Esdras, uh, also called For Ezra, is a great example of this. And uh, I, I, I told some folks this recently that when I did a little sermon series on this for our folks, I actually read this section of um, two Ezra, second Ezra, as though I were just quoting Revelation. And I didn't tell my community until like afterwards. I was like, so raise your hand if you're pretty sure I just read from Res Revelation. And they're all like, that's a weird question. Yes. And I just like punked them and was like, actually, that's not revelation at all. And they're all, oh, you know, and I was like, but it's okay because it sounds so similar and it has its, the same kind of function. Um, and I'll just say this last thing, uh, Michael Gorman, by the way, you want a starting place with like a book in hand. Michael Gorman has a book called Reading Revelation Responsibly. And that is by far, if you want to just step into the academic conversation in an accessible way, that is by far the most helpful entry point into it. And he talks about political cartoons. And when you look at a political cartoon, you don't look and say, oh, there's a real elephant and a real donkey that are nemeses, right? Like you just don't. Like, uh, you know, though, what they're talking about. Uh, Revelation for the first century audience would have seen these so-called political cartoons and they would have said, oh, we know exactly what this is all about. Unfortunately, 2,000 years later, we have a culture gap and we don't have as easy access to that sort of mentality. One of the things that kind of comes out of this what Jay, when Jay was talking about being afraid, I remember, I mean, I think if you grew up in church at all, there were certain points that were scary, especially as like 1993. I remember I was like, okay, it's 1993. If there is going to be seven years tribulation, then it will probably happen in the year 2000. And so I might get taken out in 1993. And then that didn't happen. So then it came 2000 and <laughs> Y2K. Remember, I was like, oh my God, this is happening. It's going to yep. happen for sure. And and for me... Did you guys take all your cash out from the ATM? I, I mean, I, I don't have any cash. You can't cash, take your no. cash to heaven, dude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, the biggest issue with all of this stuff, because again, I agree... These things matter. God put these issues, the, the issue of a thousand year reign in there for a reason. They matter. What you think about the end times matters. But however you're viewing it, if you're a Christian, 
and you're terrified of yeah. God yeah. by the book of Revelation, you are misreading it. Revelation is the hope of Christianity. It's the hope for the world. It is hope for the cosmos. And so there's something we've picked up, and I think that's what Hanegraaff nails down with the newspaper theology. It's mm-hmm. used to scare. It's used to frighten. Um, and in a sense, if you're not aligned with Jesus, the, the there is something to be to be afraid about, but for Christians to be afraid of their king returning to wipe away every tear and and do away with famine and war and murder, there's something really wrong in how we're reading the Bible. And so, wherever you're at in the debates on rapture, tribulation, millennium stuff, man, you're getting the wrong picture of God painted in the way you're reading it if you're afraid of God as a believer. This is our hope. This is our hope. This is what we long for. And this is why we endure present suffering now because there's a future glory. That's good stuff. <laughs> you know, I think uh, I think we know there's a trajectory historically. Uh, I think there is evidence that in the second or third century, I have, I'd have to go look in, uh, look in my resources again. I, but I, I have this like faint memory that there is a church father who is the first to connect the idea of an antichrist with a future. Mm. Uh, and it's the first to connect an antichrist with revelation, because that's not in there either, just like mm. rapture is not in there. And I would guess, and again, I, I don't really study church history per se that much, but my guess would be that kind of like in our generation, like one seed, one moment, one idea can actually like reshape yeah. our imaginations really quickly. Um, I think that it happens in, in Christian history that that one idea actually alters paradigms and it, and it happens more quickly than we might imagine. A quick break to uh, let you know about an incredible event we have coming up in San Jose, California. We will be hosting a debate between Christian apologist Frank Turek and one of the world's leading skeptics and atheists, Michael Shermer. Uh, They are going to be debating what better explains reality. It will be happening Friday, August 24th at Westgate Church. You can find all the information on regenerationproject.org. We feel... uh, passionate about this event, a a debate, a civil discussion. Um, Here at the Regeneration Project, we are about asking questions. We're about wrestling with deep and difficult issues. And so this is just a way for us to do with two great minds. What better explains reality, reality, atheism or theism? Yeah. And um, just in case you're wondering, event is free. So there's no excuses. No excuse. So go online, regenerationproject.org. Um, sign up. Sign up. There are yeah. still tickets, but make sure to sign up. It's a free ticket, but you need to sign up. So go to regenerationproject.org. Yep. And uh, we also want to uh, remind you that we've got some incredible partners in ministry here at the Regeneration Project. Um, Eternity Bible College is an undergraduate Bible college. Um located in Southern California, but they've got campuses actually all over the country and a really robust online program as well. They're really committed to providing um, a a really rich and high quality theological education for a super affordable 
Price. They uh, one of the one of their missions is to um, they're committed to making sure that all of their graduates graduate without any debt. So uh, you can go to eternitybiblecollege.com and find more info there. And for those of you who are interested in a graduate program, uh, master's degrees and doctorates, um, our our partner in ministry from day one of the Regeneration Project has been and continues to be Western Seminary. Um, Western Seminary is located in Portland, Oregon, but again, they've got campuses all over and a really robust online program. And they've got some of the most important theological voices out there today who teach at um, Western. So you can go to westernseminary.edu. Uh, and find more info about them. And um, of course, if you ever want to get connected to us here at the Regeneration Project, you can always email us at podcast at regenerationproject.org or go to our website, regenerationproject.org. Now back to our conversation with Kurt Willems. Kurt, I want to ask you, you, um, in the last 10 minutes, you've already sort of pointed us you just hit it really quickly but these are game changes for a lot of people uh the idea of the antichrist that language and the idea of rapture which those two words again going back to just my own childhood which which i think is representative of many kids who grew up in 90s and early 2000s youth group culture those two words were the driving forces behind everything we thought we knew about revelation and the end of the world there's going to be an antichrist and the way god is going to solve that problem if we love him enough is to rapture us away and you just like very quickly we're like well like if you actually read revelation you're going to have a hard time finding those ideas. So I want to ask you this. I know we're not getting too much into the nuts and bolts, but I do want to ask you your own reading of Revelation and and through all of the process of study and research um, and thoughtful theological engagement, your understanding of what Revelation tells us about the end of time sort of as we know it or where this story is headed. Uh, let, me, let me start by just giving my little summary of revelation it takes yeah. like a sentence and and this is how i sort of just think out loud about revelation and hopefully that's helpful for other people but i i say that the last book of the bible is a revelation of jesus to john for the church against the empire during the first century and what i mean by that essentially is that if we really want to take revelation on its own terms the book literally starts a revelation of Jesus. That's how it opens. <laughs> and and to get to some of the comments you guys were making before about fear, right? Like, like if Jesus in Revelation is different than Jesus in the Gospels, we have a problem. <laughs> we have a real problem. And so, I think one of the things we have is uh, John saying, this is a revelation of Jesus. And we know who Jesus is. Uh, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, um, heals people, loves people compassionately. Sure, speaks truth to power and does all of those things as well. You can say things like brood of vipers. I mean, that's kind of mean, but you know, like, like that's a lot different than hacking fools with a sword. You know what I'm saying? And so um, that that is already should get us like, oh, and, and to John, this is something that John, whoever this John is, some think it's an apostle, some think it's another John, um, but it is something John is intimately experiencing. We should also see this as John's own encounter with Jesus um, being expressed in this crazy, beautiful, confusing vision. And, and this is John's devotional experience of Christ. 
right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I just have come to believe that that Jesus isn't terrifying, that Jesus is good. Um, for the church, it's actually for seven churches, right? Uh, we read Paul and he writes to Corinth and we say, oh, this was a letter to the Corinthians during the first century. We should be doing the exact same thing with this letter. This is a letter addressed to seven churches about issues pertinent to seven churches. I've never gotten an email that said, hey, Kurt, in 2000 years, can you deal with this issue? You know, like this is real raw stuff uh, against the empire, I said. And all I'll say there is um, what I mean by that is if this is apocalyptic literature and if apocalyptic literature is by its very nature, you know, antithetical to oppressors. It's stick it to the man literature. It is. That's the, by nature, is, that's what it is. It is what it does every time. Um, and it's not, um, you know, stick it to the future man. It's mm. stick it to the man that's oppressing us right now. Um, and so, against the empire. But I also will add this layer to it, that it's very clear in Revelation that it's not even the governmental systems of Rome and their influence in Asia Minor that's the real enemy. The enemy is the Satan, the mm-hmm. dragon, the snake, right? The, the real enemy is there is a, a power that is influencing all of this stuff. That the the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth get their power from Satan. And Satan is using them as his, or its, I would say Satan's an it. It's puppets, right? And so, that is really a huge deal. And then during the first century, what do I mean by that? I no longer agree with Hank Hanegraaff on partial preterism. I, I'm not a preterist either. Uh, I think that against that view, that Revelation was, in fact, I agree with the dispensationalist friends that may be listening, uh, that it was written probably in the 90s under Domitian, um, but I do believe that it's written for a first century audience. They're facing all kinds of things. I mean, imagine being Jewish followers of Jesus who have migrated from a place in Israel, Jerusalem, where your temple was destroyed like 30 years earlier, you flee for your lives because Jesus warned them to, you know, Jesus is like, when you see all these armies, when you see all this stuff happening, run for Dodge, get out of there, you know, and they end up in Asia Minor and their world is devastated. All they see around them is emperor worship and emperor cult and do these things and you can be part of this guild and do these things and you can be part of this sort of space where we buy our groceries, for instance, right? And, and so, this is raw, real stuff, and Jesus seems to be inviting them to, instead of compromise, to persevere, even if it means death. But death doesn't have the final word. There is this new reality that is going to come forth, and that is the future hope, right? 20 and 21 says a, um, a new heaven and new earth are going to emerge, and the word there, of course, for new is not brand new out of nothing new, but this is a brand new in nature, something new is going to happen to these spaces that are already present in God's cosmos. And so, that's where the storyline's headed. And um, if we believe, I'm going to go to Paul really quick, if we believe Paul's instructions about the spirit being the down payment of that kind of future, Mm -hmm. you know, you go to Romans 8 and you get that, um, then I would say, Uh, as we look to Revelation 21 and 22, and we get these sort of big paradigm ideas about what God's world ought to be, today, here, now, the Spirit empowers the people of God to say, what would it look like if we were to be a microcosm of that 
healed purge creation that God wants to bring about and will bring about as an act of grace. As we sort of wind down, Kurt, you know, you, you're a theologian, you're a writer, podcast, blogs, everything, tons of stuff. You're also a pastor in a local church and you have a community there at Pangea that you love and serve. And as is true for all of us, you know, so much of our work, um, even the more public work, I think is always driven by real names and real faces and real stories. And so if you could just sort of imagine the names, faces, and stories of people listening who you've never met from all over the world, um, who maybe have had similar experiences as all all three of us, you know, the fear that was instilled in us when it came to the last book of the Bible. Talk pastorally as we wind down uh, to encourage our audience to re-engage. Um, you, you mentioned the Michael Gorman book, uh, Reading Revelation Responsibly. Um, maybe you could even include some other resources, but even more than the resources, just encourage our people like how, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of experiencing a paradigm shift, just listening to this now. I, I do want to re-engage. I do want to figure out how I can see the underlying. And once you get it, the obvious beauty and power of this story that tells us where the story is headed. Um, just talk pastorally and encourage our people yeah. to, to dive back in. I want to say first that I get it. Uh, I get uh, the fear that a lot of folks have. Um, and, and maybe deep down in your bones, you say, oh, but Jesus, I know Jesus is good, but I feel like I can't really prove it when I get to Revelation. Or, or I know Jesus is good, but there's this other tape, this other storyline playing in my head of that sermon I heard when I was 17 years old and found Jesus. And the way I found Jesus was through a fear moment in my life that I did not want to be someone who experienced the second death or whatever it might be, or the rapture and be left behind and all this stuff. And here's what I've come to know is that Jesus is beautiful. Um, Jesus, oh man, you know, more than nerding out, like for me, all of this just reminds me and invites me to be the kind of person who asks Jesus these questions. You know, that's who I want to be at the end of the day. And I hope like when, when fear steps into the picture, what I ask people, I say, have you asked Jesus about your fear? Have you asked Jesus about your doubts? Because, because at the end of the day, we have text, we're, we're going to have various ways of reading it. But what we also have is the, the power and beauty and love of the presence of Jesus through the spirit. And, and so that's where I want to take people ultimately. Now, if rereading Revelation in a way that I think is actually more textually honest and textually helpful also reinforces this idea that um, we do not have to fear, then I think, hey, let's lean into that as well. And, and, and yes, we, we are not going to be driven by our feelings when we interpret the Bible, although we all have lenses. Uh, we want to read the text as much as we can on its own terms. Um, But man, I just love when reading the Bible on its own terms actually leads to a more beautiful Jesus that we can picture and imagine. I mean, Jesus shows us self-sacrificial love is what conquers evil and ushers in new creation. And for me, that's, that's the heartbeat behind all of this. And if we can see that Jesus, and we can see that, you know what? Jesus is a source of truth telling. 
that sword cuts through all the BS our culture has to offer us that tells us this thing's going to fix it. That thing's going to fix it. Jesus is true, beautiful, sometimes penetrating words actually are the very means through which I think God is going to bring hope, healing, and restoration for uh, this thing we call new creation. So, I guess that's where I would go. And I briefly, a couple of resources, of course, you can go to my Rapture Drill podcast. You can find that on the interwebs. I I have a thing I give away called uh, the Revelation Cheat Sheet, which kind of synthesizes some of this in a PDF, revelationcheatsheet.com. And I would say pair that Michael Gorman book with uh, a little thing by N.T. Wright called Revelation for Everyone. And uh, some of these other resources, you'll have a great mix and maybe even get to a place where you can read Revelation devotionally and trust that this God is good. Yeah, that's really well said, Kurt. Um, You you talked a little bit about it already, but let people know, I mean, Revelation and the end times is just one sliver of some of the work you've put out there. You have, uh, like we were mentioning before, several podcasts. One of them is the Paulcast, where you dive, you deep dive, and you do nerd out on all things Apostle Paul. And so, um, super helpful. So, uh, there's so much stuff you do. So, for people who are looking to connect with you and your work, uh, where can they find you online, whether it's you know Twitter, websites, all of that? Yeah, so pretty much any social media thing you can think of besides Snapchat. Is that what the cool kids do? I don't do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's weird. I made it's one weird. for you, actually. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh I, I hope it's clean because I just hear Snapchat can get weird. Um, so I'm not into that. Um, but uh, Myspace.com black backslash Kurt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Almost yeah, yeah. a millennial Williams. That's right. That's right. And uh, you can play my original rock music there or whatever. That is not really me. Um yeah, so Kurt Willems is spelled K-U-R-T-W-I-L-L-E-M-S. Everyone always calls me Kirk Williams or <laughs> whatever else. It's just the most horrible naming. I Anyway, uh, so so uh, you can find me on social media that way. Uh, the easiest way to find just like what I'm doing is my email list. Honestly, I you'll find everything else through that. And if you go to revelationcheatsheet.com, you'll get that resource, but you're also invited and added to my email community. And for me, that is a community I'm trying to foster. And during the school year, maybe three to four times a month, I'll send out an email during the summer. It's kind of hit and miss, but um, that would be an easy way to find me. My work is called Theology Curator. And uh, yeah, I'm on Patheos too. So uh, there's a blog over there called the Pangea blog that's been around for a long time. And once in a while, I uh, do some stuff there too. So always a pleasure. You are uh, one of the brightest minds and most important voices. I think we're we're just thrilled to be able to share you and your gifts with as many people as we can. Um, Thank you so much for your time. And we want to have you back on real soon. Hey guys, this is honestly, uh, I love this stuff. So thanks so much for having me. It's great. 